0: Um, If you're new, uh, what we usually do here is kind of march through books of the Bible. And today's a great day because we're going to start a new one today. So go ahead and grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there should be one right in front of you or around you that you can use. And we'll be uh, in the book of Colossians, which on the Pew Bible, at least most of the Pew Bibles, is on page 983. All right, so once you've found it, go ahead and stand up. All right, go ahead and follow along as I read the first couple of verses of Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to to open up your word together. Uh, I pray that it would inform us, but not just inform us, but transform us, Lord. I pray that even our week this week would be not the same, Because of what you're going to teach us this morning by your word. I pray, Jesus, that your gospel would shine brightly through your word this morning and by your spirit into our hearts. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, so as you can see, uh, we're starting a new series today. And so, Basically for the next five months, save a little break for Advent, uh, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. And our series in the book of Colossians is called Jesus plus Nothing, the Pure Gospel in Colossians. And so our plan for today, you know, we're not just going to cover those two verses. Um, What we're going to do is threefold. First, we're going to ask the questions and kind of poke around the letter. Kind of read the table of contents, read the, read the back, kind of look at the chapter breaks, figure out what's going on with it by asking, you know, who, what, when, where, why of this letter. But then second, uh, just like we did in Philippians, we're going to have certain members of our own family come up and read portions of the letter, and we're going to read through the whole thing. So we're going to cover the whole letter today as we intro it. Right, and then lastly, we're going to spend some time responding to it in worship. All right, so let's dive in. So we're going to ask the questions, who, what, when, where, and why. So we'll start with who. And so we see right there, verse 1, what does it say? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And so first we see, you know, opening verse we see that Paul the Apostle, along with Timothy, wrote this letter. So we'll start with Paul. Most of you have heard the name Paul, the Apostle Paul. And Paul is his Gentile name, his Greek name. And you've probably, or many of you have probably heard of his Jewish name, Saul. And the book of Acts tells the story of this guy. Sort of the the origin story about how Saul, a young, die-hard Pharisee, which is one of the Jewish sects, and he's also an up-and-coming Jewish leader, he was murderously persecuting Christians. He hated Christians because he thought they were a cult. He thought they were preaching the wrong God. But then the the risen-from-the-dead Jesus appears to him. Literally, while he's on a road trip to persecute more Christians. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Syria, and Jesus appears to him in a blinding light, knocks him onto his back. He blinds him to show him how blind he had been. And then he saves him by saying, hey, so you know, I'm the Savior. You shouldn't persecute me. I am your, your Lord, okay? <laughs> okay, good Jew, I am your Messiah. So he saves him from his self-absorbed and self-confident. You know, he was confident. He was just going for it. He's devoted. So he blinds him. He saves him. And then what does he do? Jesus grabs a hold of this guy, and he commissions him. You know, he doesn't just blind him and then give him his sight to sort of show him that he needs to listen to Jesus now. He doesn't just save him to send him to heaven later. He commissions him. He, he appoints him as one of the greatest missionaries that the church has ever seen. He commissions him to bring the gospel, which is news, news previously not heard, not to his own people, the Jews, but to the nations, the Gentiles. Now, we see across the Old Testament that God always planned to bring good news to the nations, and we saw in Isaiah, in the servant songs about Jesus, that this suffering servant, would suffer so that good news could be preached to the whole world. And so we find out in Acts chapter 9 that the person through which Jesus wants to bring this news, at least initially, is Saul, who then becomes known as Paul because that's his Gentile name. And then notice it says here in verse 1, Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And if you read the chapter in Acts that describes Paul's conversion, that's exactly the impression you get. This was not Paul's idea. Paul did not have a choice in the matter. And if given the choice, he would have said no. But Jesus said, no, I have picked him. I have chosen him. He's going to bring the news to the nations. So that's Paul. But he's not the only person mentioned here. Timothy is also mentioned. And Paul met Timothy during his second missionary venture while he's traveling west through ancient Turkey. And so as soon as he met Timothy, Timothy got saved. From that point on, Paul and Timothy were inseparable. Now, Timothy was, as Paul would call him, Paul's beloved child. They were super close. And Paul would send Timothy on special miss- missions on his behalf to different churches. And Paul was not a lone wolf. He was always surrounded by those he partnered with and raised up in ministry. And here we see it right in verse 1. And so we see that this letter was penned by Paul. Paul. As well as by Timothy, but it's a letter. So who are the recipients? No, the author was Paul and Timothy. Who who was it addressed to? Well, in verse 2, we see that the letter is addressed to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters. And the reason I say and sisters is because in the plural, the use of that word in the New Testament often includes both genders. So your translation might say brothers. Yours might say brothers and sisters. It means brothers and sisters. And so it's to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Okay, so Colossae, that's that's the city where these Christians are living. So a couple of things I want to kind of get across about Colossae. And you can go ahead and throw up the bigger map. I think it's the first map. All right, so you can't really see much there, but um, Colossae was mostly Gentile, and the reason is because it's in ancient Turkey, and if I may, I'm just going to walk over there. So Colossae was mostly full of Gentiles, as in non-Jewish people. These are Greek-speaking people, but like most cities in this ancient time, uh, in this area, it had a good amount of Jews. And so it would have been majority Gentile with a contingent of Jews. Okay? And Paul will find out in the letter, he's never been there. He's never been there. So he's writing to people he's, in most cases, never met, to a place he's never been. He did not start this church. His friend did. His friend's name is Epaphras. We'll, find, we'll uh, read about him in the letter. So most likely, uh, what happened was Epaphras probably got saved while Paul was preaching in the city of Ephesus, which is also in that kind of rightmost section but it's on the coast, the west coast, 120 miles away from Colossae. So Paul's preaching in Ephesus. A guy named Epaphras gets saved. He's from Colossae. He goes home. He preaches the gospel. Kaboom, a church is born in Colossae. And so Colossae was part of a, and you can go to the next map where you can see a little bit closer. So this is ancient Turkey. Uh, Colossae, let me just walk again. So Colossae is part of this tri-city region, and it's right next to two other cities, which by the time that this letter was written, these two other cities are actually more important. They're, they're, the, they're numbers one and two on this tri-city uh, list. Colossae is number three. And the two cities are Laodicea and Hierapolis. We're actually going to hear those names in the letter. And Colossae was apparently pretty, pretty important, like 500 years before this. It was known for a textile industry. Uh, It was on the main road. But as time went on, the main road was moved. And so the significance of this city was dwindled. So by the time Paul is writing this letter, Colossae is not an important city. It's not like Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't know the, many of the Roman Christians, but Rome's important, right? Colosse is not important. Colosse is like no, I'm not gonna, not gonna. <laughs> um, so Paul has never been there, and it's not a very important city. Why do these things matter? Well, for one, it matters because this is a real place, <laughs> real place. It really existed. Um, but that's not the only reason it matters. It matters because Paul goes out of his way to address this body of believers in a small town. You know, his concerns for his friend's church in an insignificant city were important enough for the entire early Christian community to recognize these words as scriptures. Yeah, Paul had never been there. Yeah, it's not an important city, but this is scripture. These concerns apply to us. And so we're going to we're going to learn that. We're going to see that over the next 4 months, over the next a uh, few minutes as we read it. All right, so that's the who. Paul and Timothy writing to Colossae. And so we're going to go out of order a little bit to cover the the when, where, what, and why. So we will we're we'll start we'll start with the when and the where. All right. So where and when this letter was written, they inform one another. You know, we need to know where Paul was in order to know when it was written and vice versa. But what we do know is that Paul was in prison while writing this. The last verse of, of the chapter says, remember my chains. So we know he's in prison. What we don't know 100% is which imprisonment Paul was in when he wrote it. Traditionally and Probably the most evidence favors him writing it from Rome. And this would have been in around 60 A.D. So that's about 30 years after Jesus' ministry, Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison in Rome. All right, that's the when and the where. All right, most importantly, though, what did he write and why did he write? We'll start with the why. And you can go back just to the... the, um, Regular slide. So, why Paul wrote this letter is one of the most debated things about the letter. And the reason why it is so debated is because Paul is clearly addressing some kind of false teaching. Or what he calls a philosophy that was at play in the church. And it was probably brought to his attention by his friend Epaphras, who started the church So Paul, he he wants to write this church a letter dealing with this false teaching. But what he doesn't do is outline the exact contours of the false teaching. He doesn't define terms and then seek to supplant them. No, he just goes straight for the solution, which is Christ. And so what we're missing is all the exact details of the teaching. We just don't have it. And most scholars... Would say that determining precisely what the false teaching was is just impossible because we only have one side of the conversation. But that doesn't mean we don't have some ideas. What it is, is some kind of what they call a syncretism. Have you guys heard of syncretistic religions? Basically, it means a little of this, a little of that. I'm going to add some astrology. I'm gonna add a little bit of that. You know, this is a blend, a blended religion for practical purposes. You know, what's gonna help me through this kind of a trial? Maybe I'll I'll dabble in this religion. Oh, I'm gonna add this. I'm gonna add some Jewish elements. I'm gonna add some pagan ritualistic elements. I'm gonna add some, you know, folk religion. Um, I'm gonna add a little bit of angel worship, all for the sake of my practical daily life. What's gonna help me the most? That is what is going on here. The Colossian syncretism, this religion that they are sort of drawn by, it involved all sorts of elements that we'll find. We find elements of Judaism. We find pagan folk religion. We find possible proto-Gnosticism, angel worship. But again, what's not important to do is nail this down, exactly what it is. Because that's not Paul's goal. His goal is to provide the solution, not the problem. And so for us, thankfully, the solution is the same. Doesn't matter what our blending of things that we like to do in modern American Christianity, whether it's crystals or astrology or other things that we're kind of drawn towards, Paul says, here's the answer. So that leads us To the what? What is Paul writing about? Paul is writing to articulate for them exactly what it is they have in the gospel. It's kind of like if you've heard of the the illustration of a bank teller. Bank tellers apparently, and I'm not a bank teller, I've never known a bank teller. I've probably known a bank teller, but I've never talked to them about their training. But apparently they're trained not necessarily to be able to uh, learn all of the thousands of counterfeits but they really learn the real thing. And so Paul's teaching the Colossians the real thing. And so I want you to watch out for three points that Paul's going to lay out for us. So in the face of, you know, and in, in our day there's even more voices clamoring for our attention. In the face of a cacophony of voices Seeking our attention, Paul wants us to take in these three things about Christ. Number one, the position of Christ. The Colossians struggle with false teaching. It wasn't wasn't theoretical. It was practical. Is Jesus powerful enough to deal with the spiritual beings that want to mess with my daily life? And the answer is yes. And Paul elevates Christ to just unbelievable places in the first part of the book. So that's the position of Christ. Second, our solidarity with Christ. If Christ has overcome the powers, the principalities, the rulers of this world by his cross, where does that place me? And so Paul elevates Christ, and then he joins you to him. So first we have the position of Christ, and then we have the solidarity we have with Christ. And then finally, lastly, since the Colossians' primary concern is practical, Paul concludes the book in chapters three and four in practical terms, discussing their life with Christ. You know, how does my being in Christ affect my daily life? You know, what does being in Christ help me say no to? And what does it help me say yes to? These are all things that he wants to cover. And so as we all, uh, a lot of us, participate in reading this letter out loud, I want you to keep those three acts in mind. The position of Christ, our solidarity with Christ, and then our daily life with Christ. Okay? All right. So we're gonna read the whole letter. This will be fun. All right. To kick us off, it's Melissa Yereste is gonna come up and and start us off, and then we'll we'll go down the line.
1: Okay. okay. Beginning with Colossians one verses three through twenty, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you.
2: And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body, flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ.
3: Alive in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, who is the head of all rule and authority in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Uh, Do I read 15 or do I stop there? Okay. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him.
4: Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Sorry. Come on! I'm trying to get it to go. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. I got it. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion
5: I've got mine memorized, so... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Rules for Christian households. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters Continue steadfastly, sorry, further instructions. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to out so that you may know how you out to answer each person.
6: Um, Verse seven, final greetings. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are, and that he may <clears throat> encourage your hearts. And with him, Omnisimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchius, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord." I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you.
0: That wasn't so bad. (laughs) I love how it said, after or when this letter has been read among you. And this was written going on 2,000 years ago. And the same thing happened in this ancient place with these new Christians. But did you notice that in the first, in the opening, Paul said, he said, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then the last line of the letter is, grace be with you. So Paul started and ended by proclaiming the grace of God over this church. And so just as in Paul's own life that we briefly touched on earlier, the grace of God is purely and simply an act of God's goodness towards someone who didn't ask for it, who didn't deserve it. They just received it. That's the grace of God. And later in chapter 1, we see that Paul defines the grace of God. What does he say? He says, Sorry. He says in verse 5, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so we see that this undeserved God thing collided with us. And what is that? It's the gospel. It's it's the news that Jesus died for your sins, loves you, is now lord of the universe because he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's the gospel. That's the grace of God. That God loved you so much that he gave Jesus to do that for you. And the gospel is completely and totally in Jesus Christ. And so Paul wanted them to get that. And by extension, he wants us to get that that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. You need put your hope in nothing and no one else. The grace of God collides with our needs, and then in, verse, in that opening, it, it ushers in the type of peace that can only come from God. And Paul says, grace to you and Peace. Grace is what happened. Peace is this byproduct. We can have peace because of the grace of God that has appeared, that has come to us, that has collided with us. And so we're just going to spend the rest of our time together responding to that. you know, Letting this, this letter, letting this truth of Jesus being the only thing the only one. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's good. He's here. He loves you. So we're going to respond to this invitation together. Let's pray. Your Father God, we just thank you for this letter. Uh, we thank you for preserving it for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for preserving this letter so that the church could have it for the rest of time before Jesus returns, that we might be encouraged, that we might be built up, that we might fear you and you alone, that me, we might receive your grace and your peace. I pray for any this morning that are in a place of discomfort or, or in a place of trial, of suffering, of pain, of physical pain, of of emotional pain, of spiritual pain, Lord. I pray that you would meet them in this time of worship, that that they would know that they can come to you directly, that there's no mediator between God and man other than the man, Christ Jesus, that they can go straight boldly into your throne because of him. So I pray that you be with us by your spirit in this time of, of responding to your word this morning, God. Amen.